Okay. All right, we'd like to welcome Don Hissop up to deliver the message for us this morning. Well, good morning. How long have you had this pulpit here? I'm, I'm kind of, re I remember the one that was over here that you could hide behind. And <laughs> this, this is a little more open, but nonetheless. And of course it suited Mr. Harms, who was, I'm not even sure how tall he was, but um, quite, a, quite a big man. A very fine preacher too, um, fine Christian fellow. Um, please join me in prayer before we look into the word. Heavenly Father, we offer thanks to you for your word. We thank you for the many lessons we've already had today in the Sunday school and also in the children's feature. Even in the singing, Lord, we recognize there's many truths in the, in the words of hymns and in spiritual songs that we sing. When we sing praise to you, we offer thanks to you for who you are and for also all the many things you've done for us. We recognize you as the author of your word. We recognize you as well as the one who interprets and, and uh, inclines our heart to understand it. And Lord, we pray that you would take your word today and apply it to our hearts, that we would um, see you afresh, that we would walk according to your will in all that we do. And we trust you to direct us in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the title of the message today is, What's in a Name? Uh, I'm just wondering, too, that even as a collective group, if we had to come up with all the names of God, how many we would actually come up with. God has many names. When we consider ourselves, we have usually a few names, possibly a nickname. Hopefully, they're all complimentary. However, they aren't always. Sometimes they're a reminder of something we've done, some foolish thing we've done in the past, and, and we can never live down the that reality and it sometimes shows up in a nickname but of course in, in regard to God all of the names that he has are complementary and they are numerous because he is both perfect and he is difficult to fully describe by our finite language so many descriptors then are used to fully identify his character and his activities which in turn are always consistent with his perfect character at this time of year, we're reminded that he is called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. But there is another name that actually took me by surprise. And if you would turn to Exodus chapter 34 and verse 14. When I came across this name, it was kind of new to me, not that, not that we haven't heard this description used of God, I just didn't realize he actually takes this description and uses it as a name. So in Exodus 34 and verse 14, it says, You shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. I found it interesting that the Lord bears the name Jealous, because we often think of jealousy in a negative context, but it's not so with God. For he is always and only good. He is unimprovable, if we could use that term, in all of his activities and all of his attributes. So this righteously jealous God reveals his jealousy both for his name and for his people in the activities that we find in the scripture. His jealous name is revealed in his activity toward those he loves with a godly jealousy. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, 
and verse 23 and 24, again, God is directing his people. And in Deuteronomy chapter 4, 23 and 24, he says, Take heed unto yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you. And make a graven image or a likeness of anything which the Lord your God has forbidden thee. For the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. His jealousy is revealed in his requirements for acceptable worship. He does not tolerate divided loyalty. His people cannot worship both idols and then the God who bears the name Jealous. And this, of course, is quite reasonable when we consider that he has no equals. He is the Lord and there is none else. If we think of Isaiah chapter 45, in Isaiah chapter 45, verses 5, 6, and 18, the Lord repeats three times over that he is the Lord and there is none else. In any portion of scripture where the Lord is repeating something over and over, I don't think he is saying that we're dense, I think, but I think he's just saying, he's making a very serious point. In Isaiah 45, verse 5, it says, I am the Lord and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. And finally, in verse 18, for thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he has established it, he created it not in vain, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. So we see that one of the reasons that God is a jealous God is that he stands alone. There is no one like him. He alone is God, there is none else. And he's jealous that we worship him as a God who stands alone. We know from the scripture that Israel paid a severe penalty for violating the command of the Lord concerning his covenant demands. God is jealous for his name, for his nature, and for his people. The history of Israel is a testimony to the truth of God's word. A particular ruler back in the Middle, middle Ages, if I recall the story correctly, was talking to a spiritual advisor and he asked him, he said, why should I believe the Bible and what is the evidence that God actually is concerned about men or, or even operates within the realm of mankind? And his spiritual advisor, who was a believer, thought for a moment. And he said, I can tell you in one word, Israel. Israel is the testimony or the evidence that God not only, his word is not only true, but that God deals and is concerned about people and about his own people and so the history of Israel even as we've seen it unfold in the Old Testament and even today is evidence for the fact that God is concerned about mankind and that he operates in the realms of mankind the portion of scripture that we read in Ezekiel 39:21 um, talked about I will set my glory among the heathen and all the heathen shall see my judgment that I have executed and my hand that I have laid upon them. So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. And the heathen shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity. Because they trespassed against me. Therefore I hid my face from them and I gave them into the hand of their enemies. 
So they fell by the sword. According to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions have I done unto them, and I hid my face from them. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, now I will bring again the captivity of Jacob and have mercy upon the whole house of Israel and will be jealous for my holy name. After they have borne their shame and all their trespasses whereby they have trespassed against me when they have dwelt safely in the land and none made them afraid. When I have brought them again from the people and gathered them out of their enemies' lands and I am sanctified in them in the sight of many nations. Then shall they know that I am the Lord their God, which caused them to be led into captivity among the heathen, but I have gathered them unto their own land, and I have left none of them there any more. Neither will I hide my face any more from them, for I have poured out my spirit upon the house of Israel, saith the Lord. So we see in this gathering of the Lord, when he gathers his people, as it said in verse 28, he gathers them all. He doesn't leave any behind. It's not a partial gathering. It's everybody comes back to the land. So while these verses reveal God's primary jealousy that is toward his name and thus his honor, we recognize as well that both Israel, according to that scripture, both Israel and the nations or Israel and the heathen, both of them have a witness or a testimony to them that the Lord is God. Just as we saw in the children's feature, there is one God and one God only. So both Israel and the heathen come to know, or could come to know, and honor and reverence the God of Israel. At least that's God's desired end. We recognize that it's not always so. Some will be affected this way, some will not. Not everyone believes God or his revelation of himself regardless of his miraculous revelations toward them. We see that in the Old Testament in various places, but we're primarily reminded of Pharaoh in the Old Testament, the amount of miracles that God did in the land of Egypt, uh, and Pharaoh hardened his heart against God. In Exodus chapter 4 and verse 21, this is a very interesting portion of Scripture in, in that... The first few verses and then the last, the last few verses, they just don't seem to jive. But you'll see as we go along. Exodus 4, starting in verse 21, it said, The Lord said unto Moses, When you go into Egypt, see that you do all the wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand. But I will harden his heart that he shall not let the people go. And you will say to Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, let my son go, that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay your son, even your firstborn. And it came to pass by the way in the inn that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at his feet and said, Surely a bloody husband art thou to me. So he let him go. And then she said, A bloody husband thou art because of the circumcision. There are a few things going on in this portion of Scripture. One is the calling of Moses to gain the release of the people of Israel, and the other is God's seriousness regarding his covenant demands. This, is, this particular instance, um, this part of the covenant 
the circumcision here is part of the covenant with Abraham. The Mosaic law has not been given yet, not for many years going forward. So God just called Moses to a certain task, and then he's about to kill him for his lack of attendance to the rite of circumcision. A few thoughts here. One, Moses was not removed from office for this act of disobedience or this oversight. The other question that crossed my mind when I came to this portion was, is this a foreshadowing of Moses' neglect when he struck the rock later on in his um, ministry? In Numbers 20, verse 7, and starting in verse 7, This is where the Lord spoke to Moses and he said, Take your rod and gather the assembly together, you and Aaron, your brother, and speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will give forth water that that the people and their beasts may drink. And Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him, and Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock, and he said to them, Now so far, he's doing everything right. He said to them, Here now, you rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he struck the rock twice. And the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and the beasts also. And this is what God thinks about Moses' action here in verse 12. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, and he said, Because you believe me not, to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this congregation into the land that I have given them. Now, we can look at these two instances and think, well, you know what? These are pretty minor things in the grand scheme of the salvation of mankind. But they do reveal something about this jealous God who is jealous for his name and his honor and, of course, his word. They indicate that God is very serious about when he gives a directive, he expects it to be followed. So when we think about even the building of the ark or the building of the tabernacle, God didn't give uh, any artistic license to to either Noah or to Moses in building those two two, um, structures. He also is not giving any um, license to Moses to change what he told him to do. But again, Moses was not dismissed from office here any more than Aaron was when he forged the golden calf at an earlier point in time. But they did miss out on the blessing of God, that is, of entering into the promised land. The Old Testament reveals various ways that God stresses the seriousness of his directives and his jealousy for his own honor and his own dignity. He often shows this with a destructive judgment placed on rulers or nations. We would see that with Egypt, for example. Um, I, don't, I believe that after, after this encounter uh, with God by Pharaoh, I don't believe that Egypt has ever been a world power since that time. You can correct me if I, if I have my history wrong, but I believe that was about the time that, that Egypt began to, to um, be replaced by other world powers. God desires, of course, that we take him at his word. He also has, in the the case of Pharaoh, replaced Pharaoh as a world ruler. Some believe, and and rightfully so in some respects, don't misunderstand when I say this, but some believe, and in some respects it's true, 
that the God of the Old Testament is destructive, judgmental, wrathful, vengeful, while the God of the New Testament is full of grace and passion and uh, compassion and mercy. Well, the reality is that all of the attributes of God are shown in all, all the way through the scripture. Um, that should be abundantly obvious even by your Sunday school, your morning Sunday school, adult Sunday school class, that God's desire for his people and relationship with his people is shown right from the very beginning with Adam and Eve and with Cain um, and, of course, with, with, with Babel and even in the time of Noah building the ark that, that could have saved mankind. However, what is different, I think, in the Old Testament and the New Testament is, is the frequency and the priority of those characteristics. That would be what I would say is different between the two Testaments. The frequency and priority, um, maybe of judgment, etc., may be a little bit more in the Old Testament. The New Testament, though, also reveals the problem of unbelief, even in light of many miracles that are done in the presence of in presence of people. In John chapter 12 and starting in verse 35, Jesus said this to the people. Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may be children of the light. And these things spoke Jesus and departed, and he hid himself from them. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they did not believe him or didn't believe on him. So we would think from that scripture that Jesus is showing these miracles to people and nobody is believing him. Um, that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke when he said, who is, Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So while we would think if we stopped at that portion of scripture, Jesus did these miracles and nobody believed them, if we go down to verse 42, we find out that actually there were quite a few who did believe. It says, nevertheless, in verse 42, among the chief rulers also many believed on him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, because they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. So the fear of man, we can see here, can be greater than the fear of God insofar sometimes as our behavior is concerned, something we do have to pay attention to in our own life. So thus far we've seen a God who bears the name Jealous and who has the power and exercises that power at times, whether, it's, whether he showed that to Pharaoh um, or even executing, uh, let's say, judgment, if you like, want to call it that, on Moses and Aaron, not allowing them to enter into the Promised Land. But he exercises his power to uphold his, the honor of his holy name and his unrivaled character. He can displace rulers. He can destroy nations in the process of his unparalleled defense of his name. Have you ever read the book or seen the movie The Prince and the Pauper? Anybody aware of that? A pauper, if you aren't aware of what the term means, is a, a destitute individual. And, of course, the setting, the setting is um, maybe medieval England. The story of the prince and the pauper is essentially that a young prince comes across a pauper who looks exactly like himself. And they trade places. And then the following story is one in which the pauper, who is now the prince, 
doesn't know how to conduct himself in the royal court, and as such, he's considered insane. Meanwhile, the real prince, who has become a pauper, is taken for one with the same malady because he demands the respect due his royal person from the commoners that he encounters. So if we focus on the parallels of the story, we can see that the prince in the story did not abdicate the throne. He simply took on the form of a pauper. And so Jesus, we recognize from the scripture, took on the form of a man, and this is the humility that he willfully accepted to accomplish the Father's will in the plan of our redemption. As the prince in the story was humiliated in various ways against his will, so the Lord of glory took on humiliation, but he took it on voluntarily, even that of enduring the cross. He did this to bear the penalty due our sin, He died as our substitute, fully satisfying the wrath of a holy and jealous God. He voluntarily suffered for you and for me to restore those who believe in him to a perfect relationship with the Father. And finally, as the prince was once again restored at the end of the story to his throne, so the Lord Jesus now occupies his place at the right hand of the Father in heaven and will eventually come as conqueror. as king to rule and reign in majesty over his rightful kingdom, which, by the way, he purchased with his own blood through great shame and humiliation. The scripture shows us that uh, to what ends God, this God who is jealous for us, will go to to draw all men into relationship with himself. This God who has the power to destroy everything and start over, if he so desires, what will he do to reveal his great love for sinful mankind. This God who for the jealousy with which he guards his name has chastened the people of Israel and will do so in the future, who has punished nation after nation for rejecting his love and care in his very person, to what length is he willing to go to purchase sinful mankind from the grip of Satan's slave market into which we have willfully condemned ourselves? Is this God, jealous for his own honor, willing to endure the greatest shame and humiliation, to reveal an undying love for the salvation of sinners? Would God give all that he can give with no guarantee that anyone would accept his offer, that he might draw all men to himself? Would he do this to show that he is unrivaled, not just in his holiness and power, but in his love for sinful mankind as well? The scripture states in Romans 5.8 that God commends his love toward us that in while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And in John 12.32, Jesus said, If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. Not some, not a select few. He said he would draw all men unto himself. And he said this signifying what kind of a death that he would die. God did not wait until we were holy and perfect to die for us. He died for us so that we could be saved, so that we could be sanctified, and so that we could ultimately be glorified with Christ in eternity. The description of his humiliation appears in Isaiah 53, which is a chapter, by the way, that rabbis forbid Jews to read. Can you think why they might do that? It's also forbidden for Jews to calculate the number in, in Daniel, in the book of Daniel, that tells when the Messiah would appear. 
That's very interesting that they pick those two things. Isaiah 53, a fairly well-known scripture. Who has believed our report? Who has believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He has no form nor comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he has done no violence, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when he will make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed, he shall... Prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. And the New Testament then reveals the fulfillment of that very scripture in John 19, starting in verse 1, where Pilate took Jesus and he scourged him. And the soldiers platted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put a purple robe on him, and they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him with their hands. Pilate therefore went forth again and said to them, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came forth wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said, Behold the man. When the chief priests, therefore, and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to him, Take you him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him and said, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. And when Pilate heard that, he was more afraid. It is possible that Pilate so humiliated Jesus that he was hoping that the crowd would see and have pity on him. Thus he could go free after the public shame and humiliation, which of course he suffered for you and for me. This jealous God, jealous for his name, is also jealous for the worship and the allegiance of his people, for which he is willing to suffer the greatest shame and indignation. The scripture continues, 
in verse 14 of John 19, and it says it was the preparation of the Passover and about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out and they said, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered and said, We have no king but Caesar. Then they delivered him, therefore, to be crucified, and they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went forth to a place called the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him on either side and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then many of the Jews read, for the place where Jesus was crucified was close to the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Now lest we should think that these Jews were a very irreligious bunch and unconcerned for religious duty, let's see what they demand after their mock trial in their kangaroo court, which condemned God the Son as a lawbreaker. In verse 31, the Jews said, because it was a preparation day that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath day because it was a, the Sabbath day was a high day. So they asked Pilate to break the legs of, of the criminals. Then the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first and of the, of the second who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was dead already and they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers put a spear to his side and forthwith there came out blood and water. And he that saw it bear record, and the record is true, and he knows that it is true, that you might believe. For these things were done that the scripture would be fulfilled that said, A bone of him will not be broken. And another one that says, They shall look on him whom they have pierced. The God of heaven who controls and commands all things could have shown his great love for sinful mankind in any number of ways. But he chose to show his jealous love for us by giving up the glory of his heavenly home by coming here in lowly birth and living a life of grief, of sacrifice, of humiliation, to show to you and to me his jealous love for us, that we might not only believe and receive salvation, but that we, we would walk in newness of life, living a sanctified life before him by the power which he provides through his Holy Spirit, to the end that we would ultimately take part in the glorified life that awaits those who trust in Christ as Savior. The contrast between God's power to enforce his will by unparalleled might and his willingness to lay that power aside to accomplish the salvation of men must be the greatest of paradox, the greatest contrast of all time, the contrast that we see often between the Old and the New Testament. Our dear Lord and Savior has given up so much to reveal his jealous love for us what will our response be to him? He is willing to exchange all of your sin and mine for his holiness, his righteousness, and his glory. Are we willing to accept his gracious offer? Are we jealous for our Heavenly Father's love as he is for ours? Well, while we cannot match the jealous love of our God, our Savior, we can live a life rejoicing in his great and jealous love for us. This he has proved by his great humiliation and the sacrifice that he encountered for us. May the Spirit of God stir our hearts to accept the jealous God whose name is Jealous, that we might 
do his good pleasure, and live in the blessing that he offers so freely. Amen.